Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. I've been threatening for months, and I've finally done it. I finally went to see a movie at the theater on a big screen. I'll tell you which one in a moment because it's a killer of a good time. I'm Jeff Braun. I watched a popular new Netflix docu-series about an aviation mystery that gripped the world. And we'll also take a final look at award season and last week's Oscars. And season two of one of my favorite shows of 2021 has at last made its debut on Netflix. A bit later in the episode, we'll tell you about season two of the steampunk fantasy Shadow and Bone. So as mentioned, I finally went to a movie. This week I saw Scream 6. Hello. Hello, Gail. Did you miss me? You've been in my life for so long. You want to try and finish this? You're gonna die screaming. I'm something different. Scream 6 picks up on last year's Scream 5, although I think they're both technically called Scream, where they incorporate the Roman numerals for 5 and 6 into the shape of the letter M in Scream, but whatever. In Scream 5, we met a new cast of characters who joined forces with some of the original characters to take on the latest version of Ghostface. Now those new characters have moved from Woodsboro, California to New York City to start a new chapter, but they've once again been followed by a Ghostface who is out again for vengeance. Hayden Panettiere returns, having appeared in Scream 4, and she brings her expertise to the mix to help them catch the killer. This isn't like any other ghost face. What is this place? A shrine. We've got to lure him in. We execute him. Scream. Only in theaters March 10th. Biggest opening yet for a Scream movie with $44 million domestically. The previous highest debut was Scream 3 in 2000 with $34 million. So arguably that's a bigger release when adjusted for inflation but again whatever and its reviews for scream 6 have been largely positive 77 percent on rotten tomatoes just ahead of last year's movie which came in at 76 percent and i would concur with this i liked it first thing i'll say though is the theater where i went to see it it was in 3d totally unnecessary it brought little to nothing we only saw it in 3d because we had no choice they weren't showing it in 2d so if you have the option don't bother with 3D with Scream 6. Waste of money. But much like Part 5, I think this is scarier than the original movies. Not that the originals weren't scary, but in many instances, those movies were more of like a fun slasher scary. Although, hey, that first scene in that first movie is still one of the best scenes in the history of horror cinema. But this film overall ratchets up the tension, the suspense, suspense, the fear, and the brutality. Yep, it's a slasher, and slashers can be fun, but they've found a nice line to toe where they can honor and celebrate slashers, but also tell a, a serious and scary story. It also once again managed to continue the format of making fun of its own genre, and even Hollywood in general, with its latest set of rules. These movies always lay out the rules in their particular horror landscape. And in this one, they make light of franchises and all the silly corporate nonsense that comes from those. It's been a long-running thing in the horror and slasher genre, but now with everything becoming a franchise, 
They're all guilty of the tropes that are laid out in the rules presented in this film. And once again, manages to present a fun twist when the killer is revealed. I'd say it's maybe a little campy at times. Dermot Mulrooney, for example. That is, did I get that right? Dermot Mulrooney and... McDermott. Is, so it, it's, it's... But it is Dermot Mulrooney, right? I don't know. Okay, yes. I wasn't <laughs> sure. I was wondering, is it Dermot McDermott? Dermot, <laughs> Dermot McDermott. Okay, now that was I say it aloud. And actually, do you remember that, um, that comedy on Fox about uh, flight attendants that came out a few years ago? Oh, Pan Am? Uh, no. That was a drama from earlier than that. Oh, boy. Yeah, it was on for uh, L.A. to Vegas. Okay. And they actually had... So Dylan McDermott is right. a pilot, and then he has a rival pilot played by Dermot Mulrooney. <laughs> and it was fantastic That's when they awesome. were on screen. Anyway, sorry. Uh, Dermot Mulrooney, for example, he really hams it up in a couple of scenes as a grieving father, but in the end, it kind of makes sense for his character. The kills continue to be more violent than the original trilogy and even Scream 4, but unlike 5, which just felt brutal, some of the kills in this one were almost cartoonish, so if they want to continue to be more closer to a serious Scream movie, they need to be careful, I think, with how gory their kills become, because I'm guessing there will be a Scream 7. It's not confirmed yet, but I'm sure it's just around the corner. Also, Nev Campbell was not in this one. Courtney Cox was, but not Campbell. Her character, Sidney Prescott, who's always been the protagonist, was slated to appear in Scream 6, but they had to write her out over a pay dispute. And I almost hate to say this, but her absence did not detract from the film. If anything, I think it enhanced it because at long last, this franchise was able to emerge from Sydney's shadow and do just fine. But the filmmakers say they still want to work with Campbell, so maybe she comes back for part seven. Overall, I think a fun time at the movies, including one scene which was just so tense where they had to crawl on a ladder from a few stories up out of one apartment window, like straight across the alley into another window. It's a gimmick we've seen before in other movies. A movie like Judgment Night comes to mind from 1993. But when this kind of scene is done right, it works so well, so why not? And maybe the 3D helped a little bit with this when they were looking down. Uh, good times overall at Scream 6, four couch cushions out of five. I would point out there is a post credit scene, which I thought was kind of perfect, whereas others might feel a little bit ripped off. Thankfully, the credits aren't 20 minutes long, though, like a Marvel movie, because they don't have a thousand computer animators to say thanks to and whatnot. So there you go. And hey, if you want to watch Scream 6 but have not seen Scream 5, I highly recommend you watch that one first. I watched it a few months back on Paramount+, Plus, but I only did the week-long trial, and then I got rid of it. But they just added Scream 5 to Netflix on March 8th, two days ahead of the release of Scream 6. So I got home from Scream 6, and I thought, all right, Scream 5, here we go. Nev Campbell is in Scream 5. Her Sydney Prescott must once again return to Woodsboro after a new killer dons the ghost face mask. And I would say not it was worth the rewatch. And actually, now that I've seen 6 and enjoyed it, I think I enjoyed 5 more watching it the second time around than the first. And it too, like the, uh, like the sequel, Scream 6, it's more violent, more tense, the kills are brutal, and no one is safe. And it's entertaining. I think they're just both solid entries into the Scream franchise, so I'm going to give Scream 5 
four couch cushions out of five. Very unusual, particularly for horror movies, Jeff, to continue to to make movies that are actually good. Because usually yeah. by the time you get to a part six of anything, it's descended into just sort of like, <laughs> like just a, it's a caricature. Yeah, unless it's uh, well, yeah, unless it's built from something previous. Usually, book series like Harry Potter or even uh, James Bond; those are all based on book series. Um, and then I guess you know, every now and then you get something like the Scream series or the Fast and the Furious. It just keeps that one just somehow just keeps getting better and better as it goes along, for the most part. So yeah, it's a rare thing, especially in horror. That's good. No one's talking like this about Friday the Thirteenth. That's true. I think by the time they got to part six, Jason for, lives. For, Jason lives. That's right. Part seven, the new blood, which actually has my favorite slasher movie kill. It's the sleeping bag into the tree where he drags this girl out of the tent. She's in her sleeping oh bag, and he, and he baseball bats her into the tree. It's 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 horrible. But hey, when if the, if we're talking about grading the kills in the slasher movies, there you go. Just want to quickly mention as well, new in theaters this weekend. Shazam has been declared a lightning bolt of perfection. So, that's us, right? It's an electrifying adventure that's full of surprises. Oh my god! Stick to saving the world, kid. Shazam! Fury of the Gods. Rated PG-13. Shazam! Fury of the Gods. The first Shazam came out in 2019 about a teenager who is bestowed superpowers. So he has to just say the word Shazam and he's hit with a bolt of lightning and he's transformed into this basically like Superman-ish character. He can fly, he's super strong, he can shoot lightning bolts and whatnot. Uh, And it was fun because he was still a kid trying to figure it all out and now we've got the sequel and he's got a team of fellow kid friends who also can become superheroes and the antagonists this time are a couple of uh, gods played by Helen Mirren and Lucy Liu. So it looks fun. You heard Wonder Woman in that spot. I don't know how big of a role she's going to play. This one's not getting nearly as good of reviews as that first one. The first one was fun. But I, yeah, I remember that I liked it quite a bit more than I was expecting. Uh, I don't remember one single thing about it, though. Yeah. Yeah. Even when I saw the trailer for the second one, it's like kids turning into adults. Is that in the first one? It must be. But I just have no recollection of it. So <laughs> I think I'm out on this one. Yeah. Zachary Levi looks like he's once again having a blast playing this character. But it sucks because DC is wiping the slate clean soon. So who knows what? If any part, Shazam, at least this iteration, will play in their DCU, the DC Universe. Up next, we've got to tell you about a new show, a compelling new documentary that Jeff watched on Netflix this week. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff, he's Brett, and I watched a docuseries on Netflix this week about something that caught the world's attention nine years ago. It's called MH370, The Plane That Disappeared. Planes go up planes go down. What planes don't do is just vanish off the face of the earth. We have breaking news. Malaysia Airlines confirms it has lost contact with a plane carrying 227 passengers. It seems to have vanished into the net. What do we tell the family members? What do we tell the media? My daughter asked me, where is Papa? It's just so unimaginable. I felt completely shattered. I lived in denial about the plane having some sort of crash. Never in history have 239 people been declared dead on the basis of mathematics alone. Some debris has been found. Who planted there? Who brought the piece there? How is it possible for an airline to disappear out of thin air? Someone knows the answer. 
The question is who? MH370, The Plane That Disappeared. Firstly, uh, dumb title, The Plane That Disappeared. That sounds like something Troy McClure would have starred in. But it's a fascinating story, as most of us uh, already well know. And the series is okay. It's been in the Netflix top 10 this past week, so I checked it out. In case you've forgotten, in 2014, a Malaysia Airlines Boeing 777 simply disappeared mid-flight with 239 people on board, and it's never been found. The documentary takes us back and follows the official investigation, as well as some of the work that a pair of investigative journalists have done in the years since, and of course, some conspiracy theories. I think the documentary actually works better as a look at how conspiracy theories can gain traction and thrive, and how even people who have the best intentions and are not quote-unquote crazy can get swept up in those series, and that, of course, has a lot of relevance in our world the last couple of years, but the main intention of the series, of course, is what happened to the plane. The entire world was captivated at the time in March 2014. The plane took off from Kuala Lumpur at 11 o'clock at night, bound for Beijing, and two hours later, it disappeared from radar and was never heard from again. The spot it was originally thought to be flying over, the South China Sea between Malaysia and Vietnam, gave no indication of a crash, but then it was thought that the plane was maybe in a different spot, but another search in the Indian Ocean also proved fruitless. Then, some debris was found on the eastern shores of Africa, but alas, still no concrete proof of anything. And the three episodes of the series go through a few of the different theories, one being that the pilot did it on purpose, and that's a grim scenario in which the pilot commits a mass murder-suicide. That was pretty pretty handily debunked, and frankly, I know they're you know looking to cover all the angles, but it kind of felt sensationalistic and kind of gross just in the way they presented it. The second episode looks at the theory that it could have been hijacked by Russians. The third looks at the possibility of, like, the CIA's involvement. And we know going in that there's no definitive answer that this series is not going to end with them saying this is absolutely what happened. And all these series, you know, have some pretty strong evidence against them. But it is interesting to look at the different pieces and see how they could be put together to arrive at some of these ideas. It's very hard for people to simply accept the fact that there is no answer, that a mystery is a mystery without a solution, and that can be especially hard when we know that there must be an answer, that the airplane did literally have to have gone somewhere, and it's just beyond frustrating not to know where. Of course, that is especially true for the families of those on board. The series does introduce us to a few of them. It's heartrending uh, hearing these families talk about their loved ones and the hell they've gone through the last nine years. We also meet some of the players involved with the airline and the Malaysian government, as well as some of the search team people from Australia and other places. And then there's a real-life adventurer, this guy who just went to Africa to look to see if debris did wash up on the beach, and then he found a bunch of it. Uh, the conspiracy theorists have a field day with that guy who admittedly is a little bit out there. It's a fascinating story and, you know, working in a newsroom, I remember very well when this happened. We talked about it for months and months because they kept having these bonkers uh, news updates where they'd say things like, well, we've been looking in the wrong ocean. And it's like, wait, what? Um, you know, again, it's three episodes on Netflix. I'll point out uh, when I went to the show's page to see how many episodes it was and how long they were. It said they were all 90 minutes long, and they aren't. The first and last episode are about an hour, but under an hour, and the middle one's about 40 minutes, so... 
you can easily watch the whole thing in one shot. It's not four and a half hours long like the landing page may indicate. Personally, I could have done with a little less attention being paid to some of the truly wild conspiracy stuff. But overall, a gripping story, one of the great mysteries of our lives. Hopefully someday uh, some concrete ending is uh, provided for this story. As it stands now, three and a half couch cushions out of five for MH370, the plane that disappeared on Netflix. And quickly moving to Apple TV+, Plus, I just want to touch on this because the first episode aired this past week for Ted Lasso. So if you're ever having a crisis of confidence, you know, borrow some of Jamie's. Yeah? Or if you're feeling down, you know, get some Danny in your life. Or you can learn from Richard's vast knowledge of expensive wines. Fine wines, coach. The thing is, a great bottle of wine really doesn't need to be an expensive bottle of wine. You get it? All right, see? That's, that's wisdom right there. Merci beaucoup. Ted Lasso, season three, about an American football coach hired to go coach a soccer team in England. And we've talked about this show before being a crowd pleaser. It's a feel-good show. It's heartwarming. It's funny. And I forgot how much I enjoyed this. The second season wrapped up in the fall of 2021. And boy, oh boy, did I miss it. And I didn't even realize how much I missed it. The first episode was tremendous. I thought maybe they would sort of falter. They would fall short of expectations. But nope, they nailed it. So I'm looking forward to watching new episodes every Wednesday on Apple TV+. In a moment, Jeff Braun reviews the Oscars. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. And Hollywood's biggest night has come and gone for another year. Let's take a quick look back at the 95th Annual Academy Awards. It was the film to beat at this year's Academy Awards. I can see where this story is going. The result, no contest for everything, everywhere, all at once. The runaway winner scooping up seven Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Director. The World War I drama, All Quiet on the Western Front, getting Best Cinematography and Best International Feature. Then there's Top Gun Maverick taking the prize for Best Sound, while Avatar The Way of Water getting Oscar gold for Best Visual Effects. Backstage at the Dolby Theatre, Matt Wolf, ABC News, Hollywood. It was a typical Oscars. Finally, it started strong. It got boring in the middle and then finished with the big categories as always. But overall, you know, it kind of felt normal, which it hasn't in three years. Two years ago, of course, was the COVID Oscars. A different location, almost no audience, very subdued. And frankly, the crop of movies weren't a particularly inspiring bunch. Then last year, there was the slap, which in the moment, as silly as it sounds, did really cast a pall over the show. Uh, the rest of the show was weird and uncomfortable and no one was focused on the award. So... Now to have a kind of a normal show was weirdly refreshing, even the boring bits, even the fact that everything everywhere all at once was predictably winning a lot of awards. Um, and that sort of begs a couple of questions regarding everything everywhere all at once. Was it too much? Is it really that good a movie? How will this win look in a few years? I guess time will litigate that. It sort of feels like it was a bit much, but I also haven't you know seen that movie since it was in theaters, which I think is almost a year ago now. So maybe I just need a refresher. And hey, it was kind of worth it for the short round Indiana Jones reunion as Harrison Ford presented the Best Picture Award and got a big hug from Kihi Kwan. All Quiet on the Western Front won a few awards, one for cinematography. That guy was downright flabbergasted that he won. I, I kind of bristle when winners seem like they're totally caught off guard because, I mean, you were nominated. You knew you had a, at least a one in five chance of winning, but this guy seemed genuinely shocked and it was actually kind of endearing. That movie also won Best Score and I've been kicking myself for a couple of weeks because I forgot to mention the score when I reviewed Viewed All Quiet on the Western Front on our show 
And that score is just terrific. So I was glad it won there. Sarah Pauly winning for Best Adapted Screenplay for the movie Women Talking. I mentioned in my review two weeks ago, the writing was impressive and that the, the story is basically, you know, just a bunch of women sitting in a barn talking for two hours. That could get really stale real fast, but it didn't. A lot of plays that are turned into movies have that problem. And uh, Pauly just wrote a brilliant script that keeps things moving and keeps the audience engaged. Not only that, it's not too preachy. Another problem that a lot of plays or books turned into movies have this feels more like characters actually going through something uh, rather than the voice of the writer preaching to the audience. So a well-earned Oscar for Sarah Pauly there. Acting awards, I had no complaints. Good speeches. I know actors are usually pretty enthusiastic and emotional, but it seemed more so this year. I enjoyed all those. Uh, a couple things I didn't like. The Banshees of Inishirin and Tar both getting shut out. That's too bad because they're both great movies. I was sort of hoping they'd at least pick up one award each, maybe for writing or something. Um, for as much as a middle stretch can get dull, doubling up on a lot of the presenters helped a bit and I know it's futile but I think they should try to make an effort to institute some sort of uh, only one person can talk when accepting the awards a rule like that for winners would be good especially in like the sound categories we need to hear three different guys thank their moms get over it um <laughs> That said, the movie ran three and a half hours, and I don't have a problem with it going long. I'd rather have the movie go, you know, 30 minutes longer than it should, uh, rather than the bizarre cutting down they've tried re in recent years that made the show feel like it was, like, racing to nowhere. Uh, Jimmy Kimmel is a host, again, doing his thing. Another comforting factor that helped make it feel like a regular Oscars once again. He's good at taking shots of people in the audience without being too mean about it and I mean that's the job I saw someone somewhere complaining that oh he's too safe as though he's like just meant to roast everyone to tears or something like that I mean besides entertaining the TV audience he's also trying to get laughs in a room uh, with an audience filled with nervous celebrities. So keeping it light is the way to go, and I thought he did a great job, as always. Uh, Hugh Grant, I thought, was interesting. I never watch the red carpet stuff, but I actually caught his red carpet interview before the show, and it was the most awkward thing I've ever seen. He was not playing ball. He was giving non-answers or very short, curt answers. And I mean, these interviews are the height of banality, and I get that they're not fun for the stars. So don't do it, Hugh Grant, if you're not going to play along. You knew what to, what was coming at you before you started it. They had a ton of other people they could have talked to, I'm sure. I mean, if you're on the red carpet at the Oscars, there's no shortage of celebrities that would like to talk and play the stupid game or whatever. So I don't know why Hugh Grant even did that and and you know and then he comes out on stage with his uh four weddings and a funeral co-star andy mcdowell to give away an award to present and was very charming and it was very uh the Hugh Grant you want to see. So he was kind of uh, doing a yin and a yang at the awards there. And uh, and the other thing was the, the, the movie RRR. I really love that movie. It won the best song for uh, Natu Natu. So much fun. Such a wild ride of a movie. Glad it won something there. And the ratings were up. Still a far cry from where they used to be, but it seems like uh, that was about as good of an Oscars uh, telecast as you could possibly have in this day and age. So uh, it was good. I was uh, thrilled to, like I said, to get back to a normal kind of Oscars. Brett, you got thoughts on the Oscars? Well, first of all, that Hugh Grant thing, I didn't watch any of the Red Carpet Live, but I have that clip did pop up in my YouTube and when I watched it, I felt so bad for Ashley Gray. I'm yeah. like, she's, you know, she's been in the, the limelight for a while, but she's not I don't think she's a professional broadcaster. I think she's sort of been brought in as a commentator and whatnot. Okay. And uh, because she was uh for she's a longtime model and she took it like a champ. 
Yep. Yeah, I think she she handled it well. Realized it wasn't going anywhere. Clearly, somebody was in her ear, probably saying, "Okay, go for like another, let's see if we can drag this out <laughs> 10, 20, 30 more seconds." And then she got out, and because uh, a lot of people would fold under that sort of pressure. Yeah. Why and why Hugh Hugh Grant's always so affable, isn't he? Yeah, and I don't understand. That's what I'm saying. Is like, okay, he made one comment that she didn't understand or whatever, and then he like just kind of like, oh, this lady's too dumb to talk to, and treated her as such, and it was. The height of rudeness, to be honest, is like, like I said, it's like, you know, going in what they're going to ask you about and stuff. So just play along or don't play the game. Yeah. And to be fair, Ashley Graham is listed, by the way, as a uh, American model and television presenter. Not super familiar with her career. So she's been doing the TV thing for a long time, like actually presenting. My apologies for not being a super expert on Ashley Graham. The whole point was she did a great job. Yeah. Whereas people with way more experience might buckle under that. I totally agree with uh, the Jimmy Kimmel stuff that you said. I thought his monologue was perfect. It was nice at times. He also still managed to tell some really cutting <laughs> jokes, satirical, satirical jokes, uh, fun jokes, and then the dancing off gag was fun. And uh, I liked when he um, when he referenced the fact that Look, we put all the categories back because they, they removed a few yeah. categories for the television broadcast. And he said, we put them all back. The film community spoke up. So guess what? You make us sit through your three and a half hour long movies. So we're going to make you sit through our three and a half hour <laughs> long TV show. So that was, I, I think, a great shot yeah. to point out how self-indulgent filmmakers and studios are becoming with these crazy long movies. And I thought uh, the gag at the end where he walked off the stage and then flipped the sign of... Uh, Oscars without an incident won. So they've got. Oh, I didn't even see that. Really? Yeah, it was yeah. after he walked off. Oh. Yeah, I, I thought that. this is weird because usually they, they, he says goodnight and then they, the camera just sort of zooms out. Right. But then they followed him off the stage and he went back and. And he flipped this this counter. He must have said goodnight, and I just turned the TV off and went to bed or something. <laughs> <laughs> and also another clever joke that he threw in that I think a lot of people missed is when they introduced the documentary award, because that's the award last year when the slap right. happened. With Questlove. Yeah. Won it. So um, he, so uh, Kimmel made a joke about hopefully this goes off without a hitch. Oh, yeah, That's yeah, the yeah. name of a Will Smith movie, that's Hitch. Right. yeah. So and that was perfect. Hitch. Yeah, I thought that was just fantastic. I really enjoyed all of the uh, the the musical numbers. Normally, I don't really care for that, but seeing Natu Natu in particular uh, live was fantastic. So you should yeah. watch that movie because you'd like that movie, Brent. I know it's been on my radar, but again, is and it like, like three and a half hours four long? Hours long, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, overall, I thought it was okay. I would have, of course, liked to have seen uh, Top Gun win a bit more. Yeah, I really thought it would have. But and it so raises it. the question of what what is the definition of best picture? Because it, when you look at okay, the best story, best whatever, okay, maybe every, there's obviously an argument to be made for everything, everywhere, all at once. But is there a more important in terms of the industry? Is there a film that was more important this year than Top Gun Maverick? Yeah, but then, yeah, but then it's also the thing of like, well, does Top Gun even need an Oscar because it's already more than proved its point at the box office, right? And exactly. just in the general goodwill of people all over the world. So yeah, it's weird. It's a a weird fine line, or I don't know if it's a fine line. It's just trying to distinguish between these different things can get a little choppy. They, they, I have noticed, and I mean, a lot of us, everyone's noticed that. Well, we, uh, the best pictures 
are way different now than they ever used to. Like if you go back and look at all the movies that won Best Picture in the 90s, like they always used to be these big epic dramas, right? Yeah. And that's just not like for the last 10 years, that's just not the case. Like The Artist was a silent movie. Uh, Argo was kind of, and 12 Years a Slave, those are more kind of classic Oscar movies. Spotlight and Moonlight were very, very small independent movies for the most part. And like they're not big in scope or anything like that. And Everything Arrow All at Once and Parasite and Nomadland, these are all very strange. Coda last year was like basically just a 90 minute family movie kind of thing. I don't know if it's 90 minutes, but it feels like a 90 minute or yeah. so. Yeah, it's uh, gone are the days of like Braveheart and Titanic and the English patient and Unforgiven, these big, massive, sweeping epic dramas. Very good point. The, the debate, well, it's one of those conversations that doesn't really have a, a right or a wrong right. answer. And it's fun to talk about, but I'm very happy to not have to worry about award season uh, until uh, <laughs> late fall because, wow, that was a slog this yeah. year. In a moment, we are going to tell you about season two of a show I'm really excited about on Netflix. And Jeff rewatched something big over the weekend. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. And this past weekend, I had an incredibly fun little movie marathon. I came here to save you. Oh, yeah? And who's going to come to save you, Junior? I told you. Don't call me Junior. I watched the first three Indiana Jones movies all in one day, and it was glorious, and it only enhanced my excitement for the new indie movie coming out at the end of June. I did rewatch the fourth one, Crystal Skull, last November. I had a few thoughts then. It's not as terrible as its reputation, but good Lord, it does not hold a candle to that original trilogy. And frankly, they probably should have stopped at three, but I guess after we see Dial of Destiny this year, we'll be able to better discuss whether the legacy has been tarnished at all. But those first three movies from the 80s remain wonderful. Raiders of the Lost Ark is a perfect blockbuster. Maybe kind of set the bar for how to make those kind of movies ever since. Basically, something exciting happens every 10 minutes and the audience doesn't even have time to get bored or brought down before the next exciting thing happens. It's just a thrill ride from the beginning to the end. Then we had the Temple of Doom, darker in tone. Still a lot of fun, especially the back half once they're just trying to escape the temple. The mining car chase, I think, is probably my favorite scene in any Indiana Jones movies and uh, the bridge stuff is terrific although nearly 40 years later the way they cut to and around the crocodiles in the river below kind of looks a little cheaper than you'd like but that's just uh, the progress in the technology and the dinner scene is unfortunate not only in poor taste also just not that funny and it adds more unnecessary screaming from Kate Capshaw in a movie that's already filled with her screaming but that aside, Temple of Dune's still pretty great. And then uh, The Last Crusade, which is probably my favorite indie movie. The young Indiana Jones prologue with River Phoenix is awesome. Sean Connery's great. All the stuff in Italy is really fun and kind of a different look than what we've seen. Spielberg and Lucas do, obviously, you know, trying to recapture some of the Raiders magic and then take the action back out into the desert with Nazis as bad guys. Um, but it has a lighter touch and a goofier kind of comedic moments than we that we're missing from The Temple of Doom. So Last Crusade is just terrific. Uh, watching all three in a row is kind of the perfect solution for a day where it uh, it snowed all day. So I highly recommend that on your next storm day. Uh, is it the best Harrison Ford role? I keep thinking about that. I, I actually put Indiana Jones way above 
Han Solo. Either way, pretty impressive that he has two ultra-iconic roles uh, like that. And, uh, you know, director Steven Spielberg, I sort of wish he did a lot more of this sort of thing. It kind of seems weird to suggest that Spielberg should have taken a different career path than he did. But these movies have a much longer shelf life than a lot of his other movies, aside from some of his monster hits. Uh, He pivoted towards more serious movies as his career progressed. And every now and then you sort of wish he made a few more fun ones like the Indiana Jones trilogy. But uh, what a blast. Rewatching those movies, you can just rewatch those anytime. And I did. I rewatched them last July, and I probably would have been happy to rewatch them this week. But I was busy watching something else on Netflix because on March 16th, season two of one of my favorite shows from 2021 made its debut. That first season, by the way, debuted in April of 2021. It was so cool. And now the second season is out on Netflix. I got a sneak peek. It's a fantasy show called Shadow and Bone. Darkling has created an unkillable army made of shadow. Kerrigan down this country into darkness. I have to destroy him. So good. You are Alina Starkov. We almost heard on the fold. When I first saw this was coming out a couple of years ago, I'd never heard of the books the show had been based on, but I thought, wow, that looks neat. And it did. It turned out to be amazing. It's set in this country that's divided by the fold. It's just this massive black cloud that goes from the ground and spreads up for miles. And there are monsters that live inside it. And there are some people with pseudo magical powers. And the main character comes to learn she is the sun summoner. She can summon light and she might be the key to destroying the fold. It is like nothing I've ever seen. It mixes all kinds of genres, fantasy, political intrigue, Western gunslinging, and more. And in season two, they just kind of ratchet that up. So I, I, I don't know, though, that I'm prepared to say which season I like better because I almost have to go back and watch season one again. I watched a couple of recaps, but it's not quite enough. And yeah, I love that first season, but we were somewhat content-starved in April of 2021. Now in March 2023, there's just too much content, so it feels like I enjoyed season one more, but maybe season two is better. And each episode is about an hour long, and I pretty much binged through it, and I think I could have used some time in between every episode. Not every show needs to be binged, and binging, honestly, is not my preferred way of of consuming a show so yeah but still season one is cool season two also cool can't lose and the author of the books by the way lee bardugo just signed a blockbuster eight-figure deal with her publisher so that's pretty cool good for her that's all the time we've got i'm brett he's jeff we are the couch potatoes remember if it requires getting up off the couch don't bother